This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Are you filming? Yes. Right now? <laughs> okay, tell me, tell me what we're doing. We're going to try to catch a crab. If we catch a crab, are we going to keep it? No. Okay. My family is staying at a rental house on the York River in Gloucester, Virginia, just across the water from Williamsburg. It's our summer vacation. My 12-year-old daughter and I are trying to catch blue crabs in traps just for fun. I didn't think lakes could have time. This is a river, babe. Oh. Then why is it so big? It's a very big river. No. Nothing. Did Uh, they... They beheaded the shrimp! No. I put Chad in there. Oh. Well, they beheaded the shrimp. I don't think they like Chad. Who's Chad? Chad, baby. It's baby fish. Are you getting all the good sounds, Mama? No luck with the crabs. But we did spot some pink dolphins right in front of our dock. And across the river, we could see some stately homes from the 18th century. Williamsburg Plantation Homes. I asked historic site supervisor and legal expert Cash Earhart about the history of those waterfront estates and the members of the gentry that lived in them. Predominantly, they live in these large riverfront plantation estates. They've been invested in the cultivation of tobacco over a century now. And with the enslaved Africans cultivating the land, creating that profit for them, that's what sustains their, their place in society. So in some sense, your, your accommodations are kind of giving you an insight to what it would be like to be on the front of the river have to come into Williamsburg, mm. take care of your business, yeah, and, and, then, and then return home. John Robinson's death in May of 1766 shined a light on that society, the society that used enslaved labor to build their homes, tend to their crops, and raise their children. Robinson's descendant, Simon Robinson, says that his family's history also reflects that history. The sort of plantation aristocracy uh, was all very cozy and held on to power quite closely and saw themselves as a this sort of new aristocracy in Virginia. All of it built, of course, on the back of enslaved Africans uh, growing tobacco and other crops. And it's interesting when you read the history that that doesn't really get mentioned. It's very much glossed over. Janice Kennedy is determined to not let that history be glossed over. She's a historic site supervisor and expert in Black history with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. She's also a performer for many of the events that are put on for visitors. My family has always been here in Williamsburg. 
I've traced them back several generations. What do you know about their lives? I know that they were enslaved. Um, and that's all I know. I've never seen a picture of them. I've never seen anything that they've written. I've never read anything that they've said. I just know that they were enslaved and that they were freed. Janice and historian Nicole Brown are giving me a tour of the Randolph House in Williamsburg. This, you take a look here. This is a room that would have been used for Randolph's visiting nephews, Harrison Randolph and Randolph Harrison. Remember that John Chisel was married to Elizabeth Randolph. Her uncle, John Randolph, was the Speaker of the House of Burgesses before John Robinson took over. John Randolph owned this large, ornate house. But pretty spacious for that time period, you know. Top of the line. You like it? (laughs) Could you be comfortable in there? I mean, I would be comfortable here, actually. I have very low standards, though, for accommodations. (laughs) (laughs) This house has... Issues. Randolph also owned enslaved people who lived here to serve his family. And this is a connecting bed chamber here that would have been for Elizabeth Randolph's niece. She comes here, a young girl of about maybe 12 or 13, and she brings with her own uh, piece of property, and that's going to be Violet. So we talk about Violet being out here at the end of the day on a pallet very close by that she can dress her needs. And those two boys, Harrison Randolph and Randolph Harrison, have George and Caesar, I believe, that are here with them as well to address their needs. Where did the names come from? Edmund and Caesar and... They, they give these people these names. Right. And so you have names like Venus, mm-hmm. Sussex, Essex. London. Some are biblical. Yeah. You know, Daniel, Adam. Joshua, Jeremiah, those names are there too. So sometimes from the classics you'll have a name or something from the Bible. Mm -hmm. How ironic is that? 26 of these enslaved men, women, and children were trapped here. So I'm looking at... Do you see Roger's value? I don't see Roger. I see Sam. What does it say? It says 40 pounds. Okay. And then We have John John Harris and Eve and Betty are 100 pounds. Yeah. Is that... It's a lot of money, but you're looking at it in terms of pounds, shillings, and pence, right? How much yeah. is a human life? Well, all oh, life is priceless. Mm-hmm. So that's an economic value. That's not a soul value. Yeah. Janice Kennedy says that for the enslaved population in Williamsburg, uncertainty and fear of death permeated their lives. There's nothing that slavery brought about that wasn't intense or, or deadly. Mm-hmm. Every part of it was complex and deadly, all mm-hmm. of it. And here, when you walk into this town, even today, slavery should holler at you from every angle. Because people will come here and look at the beautiful craftsmanship and will remark on it. And just as soon as you say, do you think Mr. Randolph planked those boards? You can see it. It just drains because they don't want to give that credit. It's amazing because this is a monument to them. The city was built by enslaved people, by enslaved people. And maintained. Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking? Just looking, looking at the trunks and stuff. Just thinking about what you were saying, just about the boards and everything. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Janice says that the wealth of the gentry was not contained in the big houses, not the land, not the carriages, the fancy dresses, the important rugs. That's not where their real wealth was. Their real wealth was in the human property that they owned because they could do whatever they wanted with that property. 
Enslaved people never had any rest, not in life or death. They could loan you, they could contract you out, mortgage you, put you in a lottery, pay their taxes, give you away as a wedding present, Christmas present, or use you as an inheritance in their will. So there's nothing they couldn't do with you, nothing. So that's where their real wealth came from. Because if your crop fails, I can sell someone's child, I can sell your wife or your mother, and I can recover. If I destroy you, I'm still going to be reimbursed for half the value of you. If I punish you for running off to your freedom or what you perceive as a possibility to be free, then I can have you maimed. And the damage that's done to you will never be given back to you, but given to me as your owner. My tour guide, Nicole Brown, discovered this story in an interesting way through the role she plays for visitors to Williamsburg. The whole reason I came to this case was actually because of two of the enslaved boys that Colonel Chisel owned. So the person I portray and wager was the teacher of the first official, depending on who you talk to, official, by official I mean run by white individuals, uh, school for African Americans in the colony of Virginia. It ran from 1760 to 1774. In an urban environment like Williamsburg, an enslaved person who knew how to read and write had more monetary value. So members of the gentry, like John Chisel, would send some of the enslaved children to be educated. When you look at that list, you actually see that Colonel Chisel is sending two of his, what he would perceive as property, enslaved boys to this school. One is named Edmund, one is named Johnny. Now, Edmund and Johnny, we don't know definitively how old they are, but given the average age of the students, we're talking seven, eight, maybe nine. I asked Nicole what Chisel's intentions were for the boys when they got older. Why are they being sent to the school? Because he's going to be using them in urban environments where he may be using them as a manservant, which would still apply, of course, if he went out to his properties down by the lead mines. He's going to have a manservant, an enslaved body servant with him at all times. So it's likely that he was training one or both of these boys for that type of role. So when we talk about John Robinson's wealth or John Chisel's wealth or Patrick Henry's wealth, we're also talking about enslaved people. But it wasn't just the gentry and enslaved people who lived in Williamsburg. Julie Richter says there was also a growing middle class. There is a large middling group of people in the city. Many of them are tradespeople. There are a lot of different trades being carried out every day, well, six days a week in Williamsburg, from blacksmithing to tailoring to shoemaking, taverns as well. The tradespeople, like blacksmiths or shoemakers or dressmakers, could become very wealthy, depending on how valuable their service was. But no matter what their income, they were never considered upper class because it was difficult to reach gentry status without family wealth. They worked to support themselves. They would never really have been considered gentry, but they were prosperous. They had comfortable lives. They could provide for for their children. There were already tensions between the middle and upper classes. The middle-class colonists demanded more power. After John Robinson's death in May of 1766, the scandal continued to make headlines in the local papers. The lower classes had always suspected that the gentry could be taking advantage of them, but now it had been confirmed. Many colonists were already furious at the king and at parliament for these higher taxes. Cash Earhart reminds us of where we are in 1766. The colonists are beginning to revolt. 
when Parliament repeals the Stamp Act in 1766, they decide, you know what, you said that we don't have the right to tax you directly. So we are going to give ourselves the right to tax you directly with the Declaratory Act. And then they enact the Townsend duties on commodities like lead, painters' colors, glass, and tea, in addition to some paper. The colonists complain and appeal to voters in England. These were the people with the power to elect politicians who would protect the colonists. Once again, the colonists, they protest. They, they use every means of peaceful and coercive protest to get the attention of the English electorate, since they do have the ability to put pressure on individuals in Parliament to get them to repeal the Townsend duties. And eventually the Townsend duties are all repealed except for the one on tea. Just a few years later, in 1770, there would be a fight between British soldiers and rebel protesters in Boston on a snowy March day. 2,000 redcoats had occupied the city for two years to calm the riots after the Townsend duties. Nine soldiers would open fire on hundreds of protesters, killing five of the rebels and injuring three others. It became known as the Boston Massacre. After that, Boston essentially becomes an armed military camp. The city is put under martial law. And then after 1773, when the Boston Tea Party takes place, Parliament retaliates with a series of legislative acts that they call the Coercive Acts. We know them as the Intolerable Acts. Then Parliament would pass what was provincially known as the Murdering Act, which says that if a British soldier is accused of murder in America, he will be sent back to England to stand trial instead of standing trial in America. And they had passed the Quartering Act, which says that the British soldiers can stay in your empty stables or your empty warehouse without compensating you for the use of your property. It's the violation by Parliament of all of these ancient rights that you have as a British subject, the right to a trial by a jury, the right to confront your accusers, the right to your property, Parliament begins infringing upon those rights, and that's what finally draws the colonies together. But back in 1766, after the death of John Robinson, details had been revealed about the depths of his deceit and how it was connected to John Chisel, Robinson's largest financial dependent. John Robinson died in 1766, and this big scandal was uncovered that over, I think it was something like £109,000, which is an astronomical sum at the time, had been, instead of being burnt, had been lent out to various uh, key people in the colony of Virginia. That's a good summary of the Robinson scandal. And the sum of the funds was incredible. More than $30 million today. In crowded, candlelit taverns, tradesmen complained about John Robinson and his incredible scam. Kelly Brennan says that Robinson's fraud was the most high-profile case of blatant theft from the working-class people in Virginia. I think that's exactly a great way to put it. There's a number of things that they're beginning to sort of try to push through. What you see is they call, they refer to them as the upper counties, and they're sort of both north and west of this area. And these are the guys who 
the established elite kind of see as upstarts. Even if they do have gentry ties, technically, they're upstarts, their opinion doesn't matter, their constituents don't matter. My father was a law professor at the University of Texas in Austin for 37 years. We talked a lot about the government and freedom and rights. He used to tell me what I said earlier, it's easy to add on rights. It's much harder to take them away. The British government and the king were tightening their control on the colonies. Rights were being taken away. Beyond that, John Robinson's deception proved that the gentry cared little for the working class, the tradesmen, and the merchants who helped support the upper class. And now, John Chisel was under tremendous pressure. On Tuesday, June 3rd of 1766, it had been one month since John Chisel's son-in-law died. He and his wife and his four children were still mourning John Robinson, and Chisel was concerned about money. So he traveled to Augusta County to examine his mine, the Lead Mining Company. Historian and interpreter Nicole Brown says that this is the lead ore mine that was funded by Virginia's governor and Chisel's now-deceased son-in-law. So, Colonel Chisel is out at his lead mines. He's looking at his lead mines, surveying his lead mines, not surveying in the way we think of a surveyor, but really looking at his domain. Um, he lives out in the western part of Virginia, but he does have a town home in Williamsburg and is part of a very elite upper echelon of Virginia gentry. Chisel was depressed over his financial problems, which seemed to be compounding by the day, but he likely tried to hide it. He had brought along some friends as well as one enslaved person who hauled around Chisel's personal effects. I say enslaved person because there's not enough information to tell us if he had been a boy or a man. But it would not be surprising if it was an adolescent enslaved boy serving him, which is not uncommon amongst the gentry elite. Not only to have enslaved manservants is pretty much a social norm at this point amongst white gentlemen and certainly white men, but for him to have been you know, I mean, 12, 13, 14, maybe. He's on his way home from visiting his lead mines, and he stops at a tavern known as Mosby's Tavern, which is in the western part of Virginia. While he is there, he encounters a gentleman who he's, actually, I should say a man, not a gentleman, because there's a distinction in the 18th century, but a man, a merchant, who he knows by the name of Robert Rutledge. Which puts us right at the scene of the murder, right? from the depositions as well as from newspaper accounts, he and Robert Rutledge certainly know each other well. They had had dealings together. They were supposedly friends, and I, I, I suppose you know this too, is that they were even supposed to share bed together yeah. in, in the tavern that night. That's not uncommon for 18th century taverns. For two men or a gentleman and a man to be sharing a room at a tavern is not really unusual. And there's a separate house that's clearly part of the tavern complex that they're both supposed to be staying in, where Colonel Chisel also is keeping all of his items that he's traveling with. The two men were friendly. They were more than acquaintances. But relationships between people from different classes could be complicated. Rutledge and Chisel were really pretty close, uh, about as close as people outside of each other's station could be, thinking of each other even as friends, which is not too terribly common for a gentleman and then a middling man. And he was a merchant, right? Is that right? Yes, he was a merchant. Here's some background on Robert Rutledge. 
He was born in Scotland into what one document described as prosperous yeoman stock. Yeoman was the social class between the gentry and the servants, sort of like the middle class who typically owned land. Rutledge's grandfather on his mother's side was a gentleman. His family owned land. But Robert Rutledge never married that we know of, even though he had a son who was born in 1745. The following year, Rutledge left Scotland for the United Colonies. We don't know if he left because he didn't want to marry the mother of his child or if he was just in search of better opportunities. But later in 1746, Robert arrived in the colonies. Rutledge became partners with another Scotsman, and they prospered. They eventually bought more than 1,200 acres of land in Prince Edward County, Virginia. Rutledge became a merchant, and he gained wealth quickly. Rutledge was incredibly popular with people of all classes. He enjoyed drinking with friends in local taverns. He was never considered a troublemaker. And in fact, Rutledge was described as, quote, a worthy, blunt man of strict honesty and sincerity, a man incapable of fraud or hypocrisy. A newspaper wrote that he was one of the most substantial merchants of the Old Dominion. But despite all of that, Robert Rutledge was not considered a member of the gentry. I asked historians Robert Weathers and Julie Richter to give me some context about Scottish people in Virginia in the 1760s. These Scotch merchants hold a generalized reputation amongst many, many people for being uh, cheats and for being very, very cheap in their wares and their sales. So uh, there are even jokes that float around in the period that verify this general notion. Most Scottish merchants' names only are remembered because they're in a few account books. Yeah, they're not going to be prosperous. They'll support themselves because Virginians in you know the middle of the 18th century, no matter your social level, needed to buy goods. Right. So they were a cog. They were a necessary. Yeah, yeah. Cog they're a necessary. Yeah, they're a necessary cog. It's a it's a different way of getting your goods than what English merchants had set up. Right. So it's a, maybe a little more um, approachable if you're middling. In this case, middling means middle class. A middle class family could develop a connection with the Scottish merchant who is in their neighborhood. You write letters to your merchant each year. I am sending you 20 barrels, 20 hogsheads of tobacco upon consignment. And here's the list of goods I would like you to send me after you've sold my tobacco. If you went in to see Rutledge, you would go into his store and meet with him and shake his hand. And there are the goods there. Mm -hmm. So it's a personal connection, but very different. It's a face-to-face personal connection as opposed to one created, in some cases, when a gentry boy went to England for schooling or perhaps just maintained for generations through letter writing. The contrast between John Chisel and Robert Rutledge was stark. Chisel had been gifted much of his wealth from his father, Later in our story, Rutledge would be called a Presbyterian fellow, and that wasn't flattering. You know, one of the things that you probably noticed that he's called a Presbyterian fellow a number of times. Did anybody talk about that? Yeah, he talked about how this was an insult. (laughs) Yeah, so basically the idea that it is an insult, that he is Scottish, because one of the things they hate, and I don't know if they went over this too, Scottish merchants 
They hate Scottish merchants because guess what? They're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> they're good at, you know, they're good at, at, at selling you stuff. They're good at bringing in their, their money. They're good at it. Scottish merchants hounded people like John Chisel for their money. Merchants like Robert Rutledge were problematic, and customers with no money were problematic for merchants. No one was financially secure because the gentry class continued to gild the lily, despite warning signs that too much opulence, too much greed would threaten the colony's very fragile, unstable economy. Everyone in Virginia was in trouble. Chisel was a member of the gentry class, someone desperate to keep up appearances, so he made purchases that he couldn't afford. He is a representation of these guys, these upside guys, these guys who are not gentry, having control over his life. And that is scary. And it's scary not only to him, but to his peers. Why is that, though? Because they become dependent on merchants? Yes. So if the merchants don't play ball with the gentry, then the gentry can't make money because now commoners and everybody has options? Is that what it is? But part of it's that, but part of it's the idea that they're going to be supplanted. Completely. Politically? Politically, economically. socially, economically, completely. Scots are not well-liked here in Virginia, <laughs> and especially the upper class who are supportive of King George. Scots are rebels, barbarians, and traitors. And then on top of that, he's a merchant. Merchants are there to get money, and, and they are evil, and they're going to cheat you any way that they can. But wasn't John Chisel's father, Charles Chisel, a merchant from Scotland also? He was, but he was a member of the gentry there too. And while Rutledge was well off, the Chisels had saved ungodly amounts of money until John Chisel took over the family's finances. Most people know that a good night's sleep is the key to feeling good, but that doesn't mean they know how to get it. Fortunately, Beam is here to make good sleep more than just a dream. And today, Tenfold More Wicked listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, a science-backed hot cocoa drink which comes in delicious flavors like chocolate peanut butter, cinnamon cocoa, and sea salt. Better sleep never tasted so good, not to mention it's sugar-free. If you're still not sure if Beam's Dream Powder is right for you, in a clinical study, 93% of participants reported that Dream helped them get better sleep. I tried the cinnamon cocoa, and I really liked the taste a lot. I have pretty big sleep problems, and so I wanted to try something different. And Beam really helped me relax, and it felt like a very natural way to go to sleep. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, you'll get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com wicked and use code wicked at checkout. That's shopbeam.com wicked and use code wicked for up to 40% off. Combat the drab days of winter with some new plants. And if you think you need outdoor space to enjoy the beauty and bounty of nature, think again. Lemon, avocado, olive, and fig trees can all grow inside your home in addition to a wide variety of houseplants. 
Find the perfect plant for your climate, location, and needs at Fast Growing Trees. Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S., and they have more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. You don't have to carve out time on the weekend to drive around to nurseries or big gardening centers. Order from the comfort of home, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And once the plant has arrived, Fast Growing Trees offers a 30-day alive and thrive guarantee and free plant consultations forever. I can't wait to dig into the Fast Growing Trees website and figure out what I want to order. I'm a huge maple fan, so I have my eye on the Autumn Blaze Red Maple Tree, but stay tuned. Right now, Fast Growing Trees has the best deals online with up to half off on select plants, as well as free shipping this week. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off when using the code TENFOLD at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code TENFOLD at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code TENFOLD. Offer is valid for a limited time. Tell them I sent you. Rutledge and John Chisel appeared to be at least pleasant to one another that day. They smiled as Rutledge drank. Rutledge had arrived at the tavern early that morning with a few friends, and he had been drinking for much of the day. The local newspapers reported that Chisel arrived toward evening, which was Virginian for late afternoon. Chisel and Rutledge stood near each other as the Scottish merchant picked up a glass. Chisel had decided not to have any ale for now. Rutledge's friends milled around the small room as the men laughed. The candles flickered as the smoke from clay pipes grew thicker, and the light outside became slightly dimmer. It wasn't easy to see in the room, crowded with men shoulder to shoulder. The fireplace burned wood, filling the outside with smoke. John Chisel watched Robert Rutledge, the merchant with the seemingly simple life. They were such different men. He's at the tavern. He's spending time with Robert Rutledge. Robert Rutledge, according to some of the other men there that day, had been, quote, thrice drunk, end quote, at the tavern. So he's a little bit what we would call in the 18th century in his cups. But Colonel Chisel is sober, according to several different reports. Colonel Chisel might go into the dancing room, he might go into another room, but essentially at one point he asks Robert Rutledge to come back to the house that they're staying at. Within that conversation, Colonel Chisel starts swearing at one point, and Robert Rutledge mentions that it's a profane thing for him to do. In true crime, we often talk about triggers. There are many times an inciting incident in someone's life causes them to react or to act. When Robert Rutledge, a merchant, corrected a proper gentleman like John Chisel for using profanities, Chisel became enraged. You have to understand, it wouldn't be as if you or I, Kate, if you started swearing or I started swearing and I said, oh, knock it off. It's not the same in the 18th century. The only equivalent I can come up with is, let's say you're standing next to the queen and the queen starts swearing and you tell the queen not to swear. Well, she doesn't have to listen to you. (laughs) It's, It's not a footing on equals. In his drunken state, 
Robert Rutledge had made a grave error, even though it seemed as if the merchant and Chisel were friends. Rutledge, it seemed, had crossed a very important line. They have a relationship. They have some sort of amiable relationship. But Colonel Chisel is the elite. He is, as we've called him, the old guard. He is extremely well-connected. And so for a man to question a gentleman's conduct, for Robert Rutledge, who's a merchant, to question Colonel Chisel, who's a gentleman's conduct, is a, a major social faux pas. And it clearly infuriated John Chisel, who had a reputation for being arrogant and quick-tempered. They begin to get into a fight, and at this point, words are thrown. More things are thrown later on, but they start with words. It might have been better to just have a fist fight and be done with it. But Robert Rutledge had insulted Chisel publicly, and now Chisel would return the favor. So they start fighting back and forth, and eventually Colonel Chisel calls him Robert Rutledge. A Scot, a Presbyterian fellow, which in Virginia to be a Scot, a Scottish merchant, the implication is that you're stingy or miserly. And so it is certainly an insult. He tells him that he is a man who came to Virginia to cheat Virginia men. He refers to him as a Presbyterian fellow. Robert Rutledge was livid. He knew what that insult meant. Chisel was throwing his lowly status in Virginia back in his face and in front of a tavern full of men, including Rutledge's own friends. Chisel continued to berate him in front of the entire tavern, embarrassing Rutledge and embarrassing himself. Finally, Robert Rutledge had enough, and their fight was about to escalate. Robert Rutledge throws a glass of wine in Colonel Chisel's direction, which, quote, some part of may have touched him. Whether or not all of the wine hit him or not, I cannot say. But if it's already a massive social faux pas to tell a gentleman he can't swear, to throw wine in his face is really what sets Colonel Chisel off. Chisel flew into a rage. And just to be clear, witnesses reported that John Chisel was perfectly sober. He hadn't even started drinking yet. This was not a drunken, violent reaction. It was about ego and honor. This seems like a good time to bring up the honor code of the 1700s and 1800s. We talked about this in season five of Tenfold, The Family Feud in Virginia. When a man was insulted, society's rules dictated that he could only regain his reputation by fighting or killing the person who dishonored him. The rules were more complicated than that, but you get the idea. If you slighted someone in the smallest way, you might find yourself in a duel. The Honor Code demanded that neither Chisel or Rutledge back down. If they did, they would be publicly humiliated. So at this point, Colonel Chisel starts throwing things back. Initially, he tries to throw a bowl of bumbo. It's what you know is this really kind of nasty, hyper-alcoholic punch. Uh, it's a cheap punch if you want to get really drunk. It was actually a toddy punch, but apparently it's very similar to bumbo, which is a mixture of rum, water, sugar, and nutmeg. Politicians like George Washington used to pass out cups full of bumbo to voters during elections. I tried some, not my thing. Anyway, Chisel tried to hurl the punch bowl at Rutledge, but he's surrounded by men who were grabbing at him, trying to hold him back. 
And I should mention that the tavern, the room they're in, is very small. So it's a very packed, crowded, smoky, smelly, odorous sort of place where you have all these men and gentlemen sitting around smoking pipes and drinking heavily pungent alcohol, and they reek of sweat because it's the beginning of June. Chisel broke free and threw a chair at Rutledge. The chair missed. Colonel Chisel responds by attempting to throw a candlestick and bludgeon him over the head. Other people stop Colonel Chisel, but he doesn't stop there. He goes and reaches for fire tongs in the fireplace. There's these heavy, coarse pieces of iron and tries again to bludgeon Robert Rutledge. Both men hurled insults and items at each other as the other people in the small tavern tried to get out of the way. But the room was very small. Friends of both men struggled to stop each from hurting the other, and soon Chisel was ready to put an end to it. He bellowed to the enslaved person who had been dragged along, get my sword. And everyone else is saying, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. He tells his enslaved manservant, get me my sword. Now at this point, the enslaved, either boy or man in question, refuses. And when he refuses, and this is from multiple accounts, he says, I will kill you first if you don't get me my sword right now. Colonel Chisel then makes a loud proclamation to the room that if he doesn't go get the sword, he will run him through with it. And so his man goes to get his sword. He brings it back to him. I think the paper says it's naked, meaning it's unsheathed at that time. And the two continue to tussle in words across the room. Seeing that sword, men inside the tavern began to approach Chisel, pleading for him to put it down and go to bed. Chisel swore that he would, quote, run any man through the body of the sword who would dare to come near him or offer to take the sword. That was a pretty clear message to everyone in that tavern, except Robert Rutledge, who was so drunk he could barely stand. Chisel turned and glared at Robert Rutledge, his former friend, and waved him away. He ordered him to leave the tavern as if Rutledge were unworthy to stay in Chisel's presence. Rutledge was very drunk. He hiccuped and smiled, insisting that he had no grudge against Chisel. Chisel screamed that if he did not immediately get out, that he would kill him. One of Rutledge's friends tried to draw him toward the back of the tavern. Chisel and Rutledge were about six feet away from each other at this point, and the friend was fumbling for the key to the door to escape. Chisel glared at Rutledge and hissed repeatedly, Presbyterian fellow. By some means, at some point, they end up across a table from one another. Rutledge walked toward the table and retorted, fellow. He looked at Chisel, smirked, and replied that he thought himself as good a fellow as Chisel. Colonel Chisel very clearly lunges at Robert Rutledge. And soon someone would die. But who? And what would happen to the killer? If the murderer were Robert Rutledge, we can assume what would happen. He would be dragged to the gallows and immediately hanged. But if the murderer was John Chisel, Would the gentry really allow one of their own to be publicly executed? It's complicated. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right... 
Robert Routledge, although he'd done very well for himself and had land and had done well in trade, he wasn't of the right class. He wasn't of the ruling class. There's a scuffle, there's an altercation. You can see from the diagram they move from place to place around the room until eventually you have Colonel Chisel on one side of a table, Robert Rutledge on the other. It's somebody of a lower social level, it's somebody from Scotland. So you've got that on one side, plus I'm a member of the elite. And the final act happened over a table where Chisel raised his sword. You know, we're not talking about a knife. We're not talking about a switchblade. It's a big, heavy object. And the point of that kind of a sword is that it's meant to do damage. If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available on Audible now. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my books, American Sherlock and All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producer Jason Whaling, Senior Producer Alexis Amorosi, Consulting Producer Kyle Ryan, Researcher Nicole Brown, sound designer Eric Friend, composer Curtis Heath, artwork Nick Toga, executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. <laughs>